Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from Latrobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Kaylin Davenport, lecturer in Roman history from Macquarie University. This is episode LXXVII, Severin Stories I. Today we look at three different people from the life of Septimius Severus. We'll spend some time getting to know those who are close to him and those who got a little bit too close to him. Act I, a hair from the beard, the death of Plautianus. Here's Caelan Davenport. Plautianus has been with Septimius Severus from the beginning. So uh, Plautianus is from uh, Leptis Magna, like uh, Septimius Severus. Mm. Plautianus is a man of the equestrian order, so he's not a senator uh, when he starts his career. And at first he's Prefectus Wigilum, the commander of the Wigiles, um, the watch in the city of Rome. And then from 197 he becomes Praetorian Prefect, the emperor's sort of key right-hand man who's mm. in charge of the Praetorian Guard. But what happens with Plautianus is he's given power beyond any previous Praetorian prefect, uh, including Sejanus, the infamous prefect of Tiberius. So Plautianus um, holds the consulship, he's made a senator, and he even becomes patrician. So he's not just a senator, he's the real sort of uh, top ranks of the um, senatorial aristocracy. Yeah. Antoninus is actually married to uh, Plautilla, the daughter of Plautianus. So you see in sort of imagery in Rome, such as the very famous Arch of the Argentarii, the Arch of the Bankers, which which is in the Forum Borarium, um, the cattle market. There were these happy family images of Septimius Severus, Julia Domna, Antoninus, Plautilla, Geta, and there are coins that are minted um, trumpeting um, the, the happiness of the times and how this is going to continue with um, Antoninus and Plautilla, and hopefully their children as mm-hmm. well, who will carry on uh, the Severan dynasty. So this amount of power and influence that he does have, it's not something that he took or that he worked his way into. It's essentially something that Septimius Severus has given to him. He trusts him that much that he's gone, I'm going to rely on you. You're going to have this power and influence. You know, you're going to be consul, you're going to be senator, you're Mm. going to have all these high-ranking things. So very much Mm. a trusted person. Mm. Here, Mm. marry my son, you Mm. know, Mm. into your family. Definitely, and Plautianus isn't just a Praetorian prefect. Normally, there are two Praetorian prefects, but he becomes sole prefect. Mm. Uh, so Septimius Severus really does invest a lot of power in him. And there are signs that this starts to aggravate uh, Septimius Severus, that he gets jealous about the amount of statues that uh, Plautianus gets, even orders some of them to be melted down, which uh, creates sort of panic that Plautianus has, has fallen from favour throughout the provinces. But... Septimius Severus never gets rid of him. He tries to clip his wings a bit, but it's clearly that this is someone he's depended on uh, throughout all the civil wars, throughout the Parthian campaign. He's not someone who he's just going to um, get rid of. He's a real key part of the regime. But it does start to vex his family, doesn't it? Septimius Severus's family never really have a good relationship with Plautianus. No, definitely not. So Plautianus and Julia Domna do not get on well at all. It's said that Plautianus even tortures senatorial women for gossip and scandal about Julia Domna. Antoninus doesn't get on well with uh, Plautilla, his wife. He thinks Plautianus is an overbearing father, Mm. perhaps because he thinks he's someone who's got above their station. According to Dio and Herodian, they don't even eat together, they don't sleep together. There is no indication there were actually any children born from this marriage. And even uh, Septimius Severus's brother, Publius Septimius Geta, who was a leading general, warns Septimius Severus about Plautianus on his deathbed. Yeah, Uh, yeah. So the rest 
the family are starting to tell him that uh, Plautianus has too much power. And we are told in Dio that he does reduce Plautianus's power, but it's very unspecified. We don't quite sure uh, what steps he takes. So this was towards the end of 204, and it's around now that we really hit the downfall of of Plautianus. Uh, I tend to always use the metaphor flying too close to the sun. So he's gotten too close to the centre of power. Mm. He now needs to be dealt with. And it seems to be, if you believe the scuttlebutt, and this is probably off the top of my head from the Historia Augusta, (laughs) that it was something to do with Antoninus, that he was the one who who finally spread the right rumour, if we can put it that way. Yes. Yeah, no, definitely. There's two versions. Cassius Dio says that Antoninus cooked the whole thing up. He's a 16-year-old boy, he's a teenager, whereas Herodian believes that Plautianus genuinely was plotting against Septimius Severus. So Antoninus gets together a band of centurions and some members of the palace staff, and they're sort of put up to claim to Severus that Plautianus had enlisted 10 centurions to kill mm. uh, Septimius Severus and that he'd ordered this in writing as well. Yeah, the, the enlisted in writing is kind of the thing that, I mean, you don't leave a paper trail if you're going to make that sort of move. No, no, no. Plautianus would never have done anything that stupid. Yeah. You know, this is a man who's been at the centre of power for years. And it's interesting that that's actually a plot device you find a lot of Roman histories is that the conspirators accidentally leave a list of everyone involved in their conspiracy. <laughs> and it gets reported to the emperor. Yeah. But I don't think anyone like Plautianus would have actually been that stupid. But regardless, the plot is believed and uh, Septimius Severus does move against, or at least tries to hear him out. Definitely. On the 22nd of January, 205, this is a, a big festival day on, on the Palatine. Antoninus has presented his centurions for acting as his stooges to Septimius Severus. And Severus calls Plautianus to the palace. But one thing is different here is that normally Plautianus would come in with his band of followers. But on this occasion, his followers aren't allowed in. And Cassius Dio says, this is uh, Dio 77.4.3, Severus talked to him in a very mild manner and asked, why have you seen fit to do this? Why did you wish to kill us? He also gave him an opportunity to speak, as if intending to listen to his defence. But Antoninus, as Plautianus was making denials and expressed amazement at what was said, rushed up, took away his sword and struck him with his fist. This is really interesting. So the Praetorian Prefect is the one person who can come before the Emperor armed with a sword. Uh, So if they're going to kill him, they need to get rid of his sword first. So this may sound comical, Antoninus coming up and decking Plautianus in order to get his sword, but it's actually to uh, strip him of his uh, sword. Now, Septimius Severus wouldn't let his son kill Plautianus, so they got one of the other soldiers to do it instead. That was the end of Plautianus, and they cut off hairs from his beard, and they sent it to Julia Domna and Plautilla, who were together in the women's quarters. Julia Domna rejoiced when she saw the hairs, and, and Plautilla, his daughter, was obviously crestfallen and devastated. Yeah. And Plautilla was exiled, along with her brother, uh, Plautius, to the island of Lipara, uh, which is just off the north coast of Sicily. You know, this isn't a nice sort of Club Med-style uh, island. You know, you're, you're there, you're in a house, you know, you're being watched constantly and eventually when Antoninus became sole emperor he would have them killed. I imagine they spent many years waiting for that axe to fall actually Mm, mm. Um, much like other people had like Agrippa Posthumus the adopted son of Augustus who was offed at the beginning of uh, Tiberius's reign. Yeah that's likely the only person who gets that close 
to Septimius Severus. Claudianus was part of um, what um, Anthony Burley identifies as this African group who came to power at the same time as, as Septimius Severus and whom he used to fill key positions in his government. Yeah. And, you know, if you're from a provincial town, even if, you know, become a senator, you're still going to very often rely on the people that, that you grew up with and you knew and that, that you can trust. Mm. Uh, you do often find these sort of ethnic groupings in the Roman imperial household. Um, and another one, which uh, we'll see later on, is Julia Domna's relatives who start to form this coterie and then will give birth to, to the later Severan emperors then mm. as well. The interesting thing I find about Plautianus is that he was clearly enough of a big deal that when his downfall was coming, Dio goes, well, there's, there's an omen. There's mm. a handy omen here, mm. which was an eruption, disruption in Pompeii. Oh, um, in, in, in Vesuvius. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. Vesuvius erupted. Also because Plautianus was a sign of stability as well. Mm. Uh, very often Praetorian prefects had short lives. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to have a Praetorian prefect... And uh, Commodus especially. Well, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so to have it a Praetorian prefect that's really been at the heart of the household. Now, Plautianus, his statues are with the imperial family. He was listed with them in inscriptions. He was really ingrained into the very heart of the state there. But after he dies, those statues come down. Exactly. Very, very quickly. Yes, so Septimius Severus goes to the Senate, and it's interesting, he doesn't blame Plautianus, he blames himself. I gave him too much power, I gave him too much honour. You almost get the sense he, he regrets his downfall, and he really regrets the situation. But as is standard procedure, when someone at the highest level of state is disgraced, uh, he suffered damnatio memoriae, uh, so the damnation of memory. His statues were torn down. Um, his name was carefully etched out of inscriptions as a way of seeing that he'd been disgraced, but also remembering that he had been as a way of putting a, forward a warning against uh, anyone who, who might try the same thing in the future there. And his property was confiscated. Plautianus was fabulously wealthy. The, the uh, imperial treasury uh, got a good deal um, out of uh, raking in his uh, his properties. They even set up a special department of the imperial treasury to administer uh, his estates. Oh wow! Uh, we need we need to employ people just to deal with how much money he left the empire. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, I think that really shows how much someone who's close to the emperor can really benefit from that kind of relationship as well. Uh, and Plautianus also had lots of supporters as, as well. I mean, this was a man who had essentially controlled access to the emperor for many, many years. And many of them faced their own exile or downfall because they'd been so associated with him. Oh, so this was a purge excuse as well? Not my Septimius Severus himself, but mm. what you find with the senators and equestrians is they're quite happy to turn on each other. Mm. Very often we think of the story of the Roman Empire and Roman politics as emperors versus senators, but it's not quite as clear-cut as that. Uh, Septimius Severus had a lot of prominent supporters in the Senate, but whenever sort of a prominent man falls from grace, then people try and you know prosecute them as a way of furthering their own careers and also maybe getting a hands on, on their money mm. or or something like that. So you do find this is a, an excellent opportunity for the senatorial order to have a bit of a bloodletting as well. Yeah, yeah. Act I, I, princes who adore you. To say that Antoninus is happy with the death of Plautianus is putting it mildly. He's now rid of his rival who he didn't like, as well as his wife who he never wanted to begin with. Despite everything coming up Antoninus, he doesn't play well with other people, in particular his younger brother Geta. Tell me about these two young men, these two mm. boys essentially at this age. 
Antoninus has been co-emperor for maybe close to 10 years at this point. Yeah. 17, oh, late teens. Yeah, uh, 16, almost 17. Yeah. Um, but Geto is only one year younger. Uh, he's nine nearly, months. Yeah, 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 <laughs> nine months. He's nearly 16. Yeah. Um, and yet it's Antoninus that has been... Augustus has been essentially co-emperor with uh, Septimius Severus. Mm. And Geta is still Caesar, a junior position. It's a consolation prize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, the heir and the spare. <laughs> and I think uh, that really must have rankled with Geta. I mean, he is portrayed as younger on the coinage. That's a way of discriminating between the Augustus and the Caesar. So the Augustus has a full beard, mm. uh, whereas the Caesar doesn't. Geta is usually only depicted with the beard later when he becomes Augustus. Interesting um, that the beard is now a sign of, of the Augustus. That's interesting because that didn't come around until Trajan, Hadrian? Uh, yeah, no, point, H- yeah, Hadrian was the first. Yeah. I mean, Nero had a beard as well, but it was kind of a wispy, greeky beard. And he was a rebel as well. He, he, he's not an emperor that you want to associate yourself closely with, but Hadrian is something very different. Yeah, Hadrian, Antoninus Pius, Marcus Aurelius, they all had the big, you know, bushy beard of, of the Antonines. And it's also a visual shorthand for people looking at the coinage as well. Mm. You know, if you were literate, you're not going to be able to read all the legends, but you can see, you know, these are the emperors because they've got the big beard. Yeah, uh, yeah. So Antoninus beard, get a no beard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. They're only only a year apart. Mm. And there's lots of tales in Dio and Herodian about their rivalry. You know, they go around carousing in the city. You know, they enjoy their chariot racing. And in the Historia Augusta, this is painted as sort of a character change uh, for Antoninus, that he used to be uh, sensitive and well-liked, but when he became a teenager, became moody and wanted to be Alexander the Great, which is fairly plausible. Um, <laughs> but we're also dealing with literary plot types here in that uh, all young emperors or young emperors of the imperial family, there's always anecdotes about them going out of the town and uh, causing mm. havoc and associating with charioteers and, and pantomime actors. But it's interesting that both these boys, despite some of their reputation, were very well educated. Antoninus, we know from Cassius Dio, studied philosophy and could quote Euripides from memory. He'd also been taught to dance by the uh, freedman Theocritus, which is pantomime dancing. Pantomime in the ancient world was, was like ballet. Mm. Um, and it was really athletic form of exercise. It's something that young men took uh, great pride in. And Geta is also supposed to be quite sensitive when he was young as well. Mm. But in both Dio and Herodian, once Plautianus is murdered, sort of all, all hell breaks loose. They feel they can do what they want. Yeah, Septimius Severus starts to become very concerned about maybe a life of sedentary developing for both of them now that they're in uh, cushy Rome. Yeah, I mean, they've spent a lot of time on campaign and visited Africa, but it's also a tradition in the literary sources that Rome is innovating for aristocrats and members of the imperial family. It's, mm. you know, where they indulge themselves in luxury. Cassius Dio says in book 77.71-2 that they outraged women and abused boys, they embezzled money and made gladiators and charioteers their boon companions, emulating each other in the similarity of their deeds, but full of strife in their rivalries. For if the one attached himself to a certain faction, the other would be sure to choose the opposite side. And at last they were pitted against each other in some kind of contest with teams of horses and drove with such fierce rivalry that Antoninus fell out of his two-wheeled chariot and broke his leg. Mm. So, you know, they're indulging in these kind of sports. You know, charioteers are, are really popular people, the sports stars of their day. On the other hand, if you're an emperor or a member of the imperial family. This sort of activity is associated with Domitian, Commodus, uh, Lucius Verus to a lesser extent. Yep. 
and too much of it is seen to have been the sign of a, a bad emperor. Yeah, exactly. This kind of boys will be boys narrative mm. crops up again and again when you're writing about an emperor who might go bad. And certainly this is uh, written with hindsight of what Antoninus turns out to be, mm. at least in the eyes of people like Adio and um, other senators. Yeah, as well. yeah. But a really strong rivalry and, and hatred between these two boys, especially from Antoninus towards Geta, mm. it seems. Yeah, I mean, you see this in the HA, particularly with the Historia Augusta, and you have to wonder to what extent this is written in light of the fact that Geta is later killed by Antoninus. But I think there is some historical truth in the rivalry when you look at the way in which Septimius Severus promoted Antoninus as co-emperor. I mean, people throughout the provinces would write to them as emperors. Oh, and to Getter, uh, nobilissimus Caesar, the most noble Caesar. Mm. Uh, but a bit of an afterthought. You think that must have rankled. I mean, that might explain why Getter didn't like Antoninus. But if we're looking at why Antoninus didn't like Getter, perhaps he saw him as a threat. The fact that if he could develop his own supporters, mm. then when Septimius Severus died, then he could try and seize sole power for himself instead. Yeah, yeah. Or it could come down to a chariot race and a broken leg. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> if the emperor is seen to break his leg, then he's infallible and meanwhile get us off at the Praetorian camp. Yeah. I think there was definite tension and rivalry between them. Act III, cordially detested. Julia Domna was the wife of Septimius Severus and he seemed genuinely fond of her. To Rome, she represented an important maternal figure, but besides a few mentions, she is largely left out of ancient sources. Julia Domna is a really important character. She features heavily in the public image of the regime as the mother of Antoninus and Geta, and as sort of uh, the woman who's going to uh, bear the future emperors. Mm. She's also someone who becomes really important because she provides this continuity between Septimius Severus's reign and also Antoninus's reign later on. Uh, so much of our details about her life actually comes from Antoninus's reign, mm. uh, not so much with Septimius Severus's reign, which is something that, that you've noticed when, mm. when reading through the sources. Yeah. She was promoted on coinage and statues as the maternal figure of the empire. And here she's really following the lead of Faustine the Younger, who was the wife of Marcus Aurelius. If everyone remembers from an early episode, you know, Septimius Severus adopted himself into the Antonine family and wanted to uh, uh, portray himself as the son of Marcus Aurelius. So yep. his son has the name Antoninus as well. So it's all about promoting this dynastic continuity. So um, the public image of Julia Domna really recalls that of Faustina the Younger. And they both had the title of Mater Castorum, the mother of the camp, uh, which indicates an association uh, with the army. And Julia Domna was also given an extra title, uh, Mater Augusti et Caesaris, so Mother of the Augustus, Antoninus, and Mother of the Caesar, Geta. Uh, she was also involved in building projects, such as the restoration of the Temple of Vesta in the Roman Forum there. She didn't get along with, well with Plautianus at all, and that's understandable, given the, what he was trying to do, you know, uh, torturing people to find out nasty rumours about her. Mm. Um, and she uh, seems to become something of a literary patron. She uh, gathered you know, uh, philosophers and artists around her, her at court. For years, historians have tried to name and identify all the members of, of her circle. We know but, a couple, though, don't we? 
certainly the great author of the uh, Severan Age, Philostratus, who wrote The Lives of the Sophists, and also The Life of Apollonius of Tyana, which Julia Domna commissioned him to write there as well. Mm. Although in the past every great literary figure of the age has been associated with Julia Domna, I think it was more the case that there was a rotating group of people that would come to the palace and they would hold readings and and, and that sort of thing. And this seemed to me very much a consolation to her because the fact that her sons didn't get on, I think, was really devastating, as it would be to any mother if they thought their children actually hated each other. Mm. There are rumours as well of of promiscuity, even if the only evidence are saying that there are rumours. But at the same time, it seems that every woman who gets to this level of power has rumours about them. So substantiated, unsubstantiated? What are we dealing with? Yeah, uh, pretty much unsubstantiated. I mean, you're quite right. This is the way to slander an imperial woman. If you're a woman in the public image, you're supposed to show a pudicitia, sexual continence. So these rumours about her sort of sleeping around, committing adultery, are a way of undermining that and maligning her. And there's even rumours which seem to date from the beginning of Antoninus's sole reign that they had an incestuous relationship, um, which isn't true at all. And then it was magnified later in the 4th century uh, AD by writers such as Historia Augusta mm. that said that uh, Julia Domna was Antoninus's stepmother and that they also had an incestuous relationship. This fits into the, uh, the wicked stepmother trope in Roman literature but it's completely unsubstantiated yeah Uh, so this is a way to discredit them both Um, especially since Antoninus never married again after Plautilla which uh, would lead to rumor and speculation and one of the answers to that was oh of course he must be having a uh, affair with his mother yeah of course Um, yeah yeah uh, uh, she was very trusted by Septimius Severus though wasn't she she seemed very much somebody that he consulted or confided with. It's hard for her to have direct power given the society and the way Rome operates, but maybe influence is a fairer thing to say. Yeah, it's always difficult to tell because of the nature of the sources. But one thing we can say is that she always went on campaign with him and travelled with him. So later on, uh, when uh, they go to Britain, she travels with them as well. She is this source of, of continuity throughout the upheavals of his reign, but it's difficult to um, pinpoint her influence on specific political decisions, yeah. however. That's Dr. Kaylin Davenport, lecturer in Roman history from Macquarie University, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, then you should have put a ring on it, but in lieu of some gaudy baubles, a review would be much appreciated. You can follow Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and both myself and Kaylin are on Twitter. Kaylin is at Dr. C. Davenport, and I am at Nightlight Guy. In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, Severin Stories, I, I. But until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.